in the chapter of Isaiah, chapter 49, verses 13 through 16. Again, Isaiah, chapter 49, verses 13 through 16. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget to be at her breast and have, and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. Your, world, your walls are ever before me. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, they say that uh, uh, growing old is not for chickens. And uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of cool things about growing old and, and getting older. Um, this young man that just read scripture in, um, his, his granddad was part of the mission committee at a church in San Diego that brought Ellen and I from Abilene to San Diego and sent us on our way to, to Brazil as missionaries. And Ian's mom and uncle were a part of our youth group. Uh, she was 16. Uh, I think uh, his uncle was in, was in middle school. And, and then to, to stand in front of all of you, uh, lo these decades later in a state, four states away from where that all began, there's a blessing in being able to serve with three generations of folk. Amen? Uh, before we, we pray and jump into our text this morning, um, I, I, I'd like to say a couple of things. First, uh, I, I want to begin this morning acknowledging that Mother's Day for some of our sisters, old and young, is not an easy day. It's not. And one of the ways that we operate as a church of Jesus is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That's a fact. And secondly, for others, Mother's Day is a reminder that along with the tears of joy, there are also tears of broken-heartedness. Being a responsible and conscientious mom is hard, tough, sometimes endless work. And there are times when you feel like you're failing in every direction. And for those moms who feel this way, I want to remind you of a very simple truth from Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't want you to say, I've, I've, I know that. I want you to know that. Let me read it again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So let me, Mom, affirm you. You are not condemned by a less than spotless home. You are not condemned when you read of another perfect parenting moment on Facebook. You are not condemned because your kids aren't perfect. You are not condemned when your kid's birthday party is not pinched worthy. Mom, you are not condemned because you are divorced or unmarried and doing it alone. 
You are not condemned by your body, which is not what it once was. You are not condemned by your failures or shortcomings. You are not condemned by all the fears and tears which flirt with insanity and take you to the precipice of despair when your kids become a hot mess in public. You are not condemned by not living up to the standards of your mother or your mother-in-law. And you are not condemned by your need for a vacation without the kids. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this day. We're grateful for love. And one of the special ways that you help us to get our mind around your deep love for us, Father, is the love that you give us with a mother. We pray a blessing upon all of our moms. We pray a blessing for them in this culture, in this church, in this city, in their families, and in our large church family, Father. We pray for them. And we ask you on this day for them to be reminded of the place they play in the economy of faith. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we speak often of the place that the Father plays in helping form the ideas of God the Father in the hearts and the minds of children. If you have a father that's not so great, then whenever people talk about God the Father, then those not so great ideas of your physical father are transferred on God the Father, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, the same, though, is, is true moms. Fathers are not the only ones that help form understandings of the nature of God. In the text that Ian read for us, at the center of it is the love of a mother that points to the love of the father. And we're going to, and I'm going to apologize ahead of time for the alliteration here, but there are four D's in this text, and we're going to follow it in this order. There is a dream, there's disillusionment, there's declarations, and there is a death. Now, let's look at the, the dream of the future. In the first 13 verses of Isaiah, Isaiah is looking towards a future dream. In verses 5 through 8, God's going to gather up Jacob, which means that he's going to gather Israel up and he's going to bring them back from exile and his kingdom people going to to establish his kingdom again. But this time, it's not just going to be Israel, it's also going to include the Gentiles. And so we read in verse 6, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you... A light for the Gentiles. Beginning in verse 40, there is this mysterious special servant of God that is going, the Messiah, that is going to come and is going to be uh, perfectly obedient to God's will and establish his kingdom. And he says, I'm going to make you a light for the Gentiles, not just Israel, but all of the peoples of the earth, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And beginning at the beginning of this text, we read that this, this vision of the future is so great that all of creation gets involved in physically uh, exalting and, and worshiping God. All of creation responds in celebration. The heavens and the earth are celebrating the beauty and the greatness of what it is that God is going to do. The mountains burst into song. Imagine that. The future looks bright. In, in verse 8, it's a day of salvation. There's restoration of the land. In verse 9, captives are set free. In verse 10, there's not going to be any more hunger or thirst because of the abundance of God's blessing 
in the land and among his people. Literally, life is going to be made in the shade. Traveling is going to be easy upon the earth. And all of these things are expressions of God's love and what God is going to do. But then we read this in verse 14. Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And this brings us to that disillusionment. God is talking about all of these wonderful things and Israel does not feel loved. Zion is the city of God. It is the city of the temple. But right now the temple is no longer there. It's been torn down. Zion feels forsaken. When you say somebody is forsaken, when you forsake somebody, what does that mean? It means they're out of your heart. They're out of your actions. Zion feels forgotten. They're out of, they feel like they're out of God's mind. Not only are they forsaken, but they're forgotten. I mean, forgotten, that is a, that's a huge thing. I mean, how do you feel when somebody forget it's, forgets it's your birthday? How do you feel when it's a special day and for you and nobody remembers? That's what Zion is feeling right now. And so Israel asks, what does it really matter? All of these future glories and all of these things in the years ahead what do future, future glories matter in all of these present miseries that we're going through? And so Zion is struggling. Now, they're not filled with, with brand new atheists. All of a sudden, we don't believe in God anymore. They believe in God. They believe in God, and they believe in God's future. But what they believe about God in their mind has not made it down into their heart. It's not shaping the way that they look at life. For those that have taken the His Needs Hurts courses or done premarital counseling with us, you know that uh, Willard Harley has written a really incredible book on marriage. And the subtitle is How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. And in the opening pages of that book, Willard writes that the right needs are so strong that when they're not met in marriage, people are tempted to go outside of marriage to satisfy them. Which means that when two people have made mutually exclusive vows to each other until death do us part, for better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and health, that we're going to love, we're going to serve, we're going to be committed, and, and all of this begins to grow cold and begins to wane a little bit, and all of that emotion begins to diminish, and the heart, which Willard Harley describes as a bank, there's not a lot of emotional investments that are being made, and that account begins to run a little bit thin, that when, you, when a, a spouse, when a wife or a husband does not feel loved, does not feel special, does not feel singular in somebody's vision, there's always going to be the temptation to go find the love someplace else. We know intellectually that somebody loves us. But it's like that old Coke machine where you put the quarter in and it's got to get all the way down into the middle of it before you can access it. We know intellectually that somebody loves us, but it never makes a true impact on our life. And Israel is wondering, we know God loves us. We know that God loves us. But what difference does it make? We, we, we struggle with the same thing. We know that God loves us, but why doesn't He answer my prayers? 
Or if God really loved me, why does He allow this thing to, to happen that brings such tragedy and pain and, and brokenness into my life? And this is where God makes a declaration. He says, Can a mother, in verse 15, forget the baby at her breast or have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Now notice a couple of things here. The first thing is that God doesn't say, what in the world are you talking about? Shake it off, put some dirt on it, get over it. I don't know what you're talking about. He, does, he, he allows Israel to interrupt this vision of the greatness of the world and creation, heavens that he's, that he's going to bring to pass. And he allows himself to be interrupted. And then he, he's, he doesn't say get over it, but he allows Israel to break in. And then God gives them a declaration in the form of a metaphor. A metaphor that gets you to slow down and to think about this image that has been, been uh, put before you. When I was in graduate school, I was a grad assistant for Paul Faulkner. And he was doing a lot of marriage retreats and marriage seminars and these kinds of things. And he, he was telling us one time about uh, a, a poem that a farmer husband had written for his farmer wife. And he thought it was one of the hokiest things he had ever heard in his life. And he shared it with us. My love for thee doth flow. Like water down a tater row. And he started laughing. And he said, you know what? His wife thought it was the greatest thing she had ever heard in her life. Because when her husband said it to her, she knew exactly what tater rows and potatoes and farming and water and furrow and sunshine and blossoming and, 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 and flowers and plants and greenness, what that all meant. That's why Jesus teaches in parables. He gives us this image that slows us down enough to think about the richness of the image that he is giving to us. So what is this metaphor about moms nursing and moms giving birth to children? What does that have to do with God? Well, moms have a physical connection to their children. Do they not? These babies grow up inside of you. You carry them around. Sometimes your arms just get to be sort of you know, rocked up because you're carrying these kids all over the place. There's a physical connection to those children. But moms also have an emotional, intuitional connection with their kids as well. A mom, a mom knows when a kid is hurt, even when that kid is at school and she's at home, right? There's just something emotionally of an intuitive nature that happens between a mom and a child that sometimes doesn't happen with a father. Some years ago, when my, my oldest daughter was in elementary school, probably about uh, the fourth or fifth grade, uh, I'm, I'm at the church, mom's at work, and uh, I'm working and working, working, working. It's getting late in the afternoon. I get this phone call, and it's an elder from our church. And he says, uh, Mark, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm working on Sunday sermon. He says, well, uh, why don't you take a break and come pick up your daughter who's at my house crying because you forgot to pick her up from school. <laughs> it's funny how that always happens with dads. You never hear that with a mom, right? I deny that ever happened, by the way. <laughs> and moms love sacrificially. Moms love sacrificially. I mean, if you're a mom, there's a four-letter word that you live every day, right? Give. Give and give. And it's day after day after day after day. And sometimes that kid never sees it. And sometimes that kid never sees it. But you give and you give and you give. And it's day after day after day after day after day. And then they finally get old enough and they ask you for something and you say no. And they go running to dad, right? (laughs) 
I saw this thing that made me laugh because I can't imagine a mom ever doing this. But a, a child goes into a mom's bedroom at night. Mom, can I sleep with you? I'm scared. The mom says, no. I can't risk the monster following you into my room and killing me. <laughs> a mom would never say that. <laughs> that needs to be on a t-shirt. But here's the thing that God is doing with that metaphor. As great as a mom's love is, it is not indestructible because she is not indestructible. My mother-in-law is uh, probably not far from memory care. Is a brilliant woman. Uh, got a, a, a college degree when uh, uh, there were not a lot of women who were getting college degrees. She followed her husband, my wife's dad, to Central Africa. And for a while lived in in villages, uh, lived in some very rustic uh, places that that you and I would have a hard time even, you know, wanting to store a lawnmower in. She would sit out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by all of these, these women, And she would teach them the Bible in in their language, in Chichewa. Giving, giving, loving, sacrificial, godly, prayerful, dedicated, hardworking woman. Loves her children. But she's struggling this very moment in the throes of dementia. And one of the sad things about that horrible disease is that it creates a veil between you and the world. Recently, Ellen and I were over in her apartment to see her. And we'd been there for a few minutes. And she turns to me and she goes, where's your sweetie? And I go, she's standing right there beside you. She said, oh, sometimes I trick myself. In this metaphor, as great as a mom's love is, it points to a greater love found in God Himself. It is God's love that drives Him toward us. How did the cross happen? How did the resurrection, how did did God the Son become the Messiah? The love of God drove him toward us. Think about putting together those nurseries. Think of a mom putting together that nursery. Baby doesn't know the name of any of the colors or the fabrics or any of the decorations. But it is an act of love in which the mom is making a place where the baby can flourish. That's mom's love. If my kids had been born into my nursery, the one that I would have been putting together, there would have been maybe an air mattress on the floor, you know, a lot of footballs. But it's an act of love. A picture God decorating the heavens and the earth, getting it ready for the arrival of Adam. 
And not just making a place in which Adam could live and survive, and, but a place where he could flourish and a place where he could find uh, pleasure and things that, that would, would bless him. It wasn't just fruit, but think of all the different kinds of fruit that would, I mean, is there any reason for there to be a pineapple? But God made it for his son. And that's why John the Apostle in 1 chapter 4, verse 19 says, when we are trying to get our mind around God, we know that we love because He first loved us. Which brings us to death. Love goes the distance, does it not? A mom and a dad give life to their kid even if it means having to give up their own life. And so God says, this because they feel forgotten, they feel forsaken. He says, I want you to look my hands. See, open your eyes and see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. In the ancient world, a, a slave might have some mark or a tattoo that was put on his or her body with the name of the master on it that identified who this person, this human being belonged to, but it was never the other way around. The master would never have the name of the servant on his body. The Hebrew word for, for, for this uh, engrave that we read in our English Bibles is the word hakak, which means to chisel. And so what God is saying is, my love can be seen in what a hammer and a piercing tool has done to my hands. See, see it. Look at my hands. Behold, I have engraved my love, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Several centuries later, on the first day of the week, like today, the disciples of Jesus who had seen the resurrected Jesus are elated. So happy. And they're telling Thomas about it. Thomas doesn't buy it. It sounds too good to be true. And he says to them in John chapter 20, he says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, together, Jesus shows up and he turns to Thomas and he says, Thomas, Put your finger right there. See my hands. God in love is driven toward you to the point that nails were driven in Him. And one of the things that a mother does in all of creation is to remind us that there is an even greater love that is found in the presence of God. And centuries and centuries and centuries before it happened, he said, see, engraved, pierced right there, my love for you on my hands. One of the things that we do at the end of every assembly is to give people an opportunity to respond to whatever it is that God has put on their heart. You know, the Word of God is such a powerful thing. We sang that song before the, uh, the sermon called Ancient Words. Ancient words are not just old words, but they're old 
words of power and of majesty and of knowledge and of wisdom. And they have the ability to cut right through to the very center of our soul and who we are. To dis- help us to discern what is in our own hearts, what is in our mind. And to help us to understand the very nature of God as He represents Himself in His Word and presents Himself to us in all of creation and has shown Himself to us in the image of Jesus of Nazareth. And He says, My love for you is not just profound and great, but it's life-changing. The way the love of a mother, the way the love of a father can change a little human being. My love can change you for all of eternity. And if you've never given yourself, or maybe you've given up on God. Maybe you've given up on God. And the world will give you a lot of reasons to do that. The world will give you a lot of reasons to give up on God. But the way that God presents Himself in His Word is somebody who doesn't love you for what he can get out of you or love you to this point, but no further. But someone who is willing and wanting to love you all the way to his death and beyond. And when that image gets inside of us and we begin to think that the creator of the heavens and the earth know our names and know our lives and know our circumstances, and has loved us and has died for us in that love in order for there to be this, this opportunity not only for forgiveness but to become the human beings we were always intended to be. It changes us. And it begins with a step of believing. And believing and you investigate and you read and you, you believe more and you come to this point where you want to embrace it. And you embrace it, but you confess the great truths of your life. You make changes in order for your life to be aligned with that great truth. You're baptized in order for your sins to be washed away. And as this sign that you are publicly identifying yourself with Jesus, not just forgiveness of sins, but this is my life. And he puts his spirit inside of you. And he puts you inside of a church family. And you experience eternal life from that point on until eternal life is here. That is, the kingdom of God is the greatest offer that a human being has ever been presented with. And if somehow you want to be a part of that kingdom, part of that family, we're going to sing a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. What we want you to do is to come forward and talk to these shepherds as the rest of us stand and praise God together. That is fight with just a cottage be.